You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to wrap up uh, chapter 2 today. Um, Let me just go ahead and read uh, our text for us today, and then we'll briefly look at what we were talking about last week and then jump right into what we were looking at, what we're going to look at today. Um, Let me read starting in verse 11, because really everything we've been talking about over the past several weeks fits in the context of what uh, verse 11 down has to say. It says in verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, which has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of god built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets christ jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the lord in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for god by the Spirit. And so last week we were talking about just that breaking down of the hostility between Jew and Gentile. And we've been saying for the past several weeks, we as a population today, as a, as a Christian faith today, we don't feel the tension as much between Jew and Gentile as they did back at this time, right? Um, and we can be thankful for that because the reason we don't feel that tension is because those dividing walls have been torn down that Christ has done the work necessary to unite us as one people. And so we said last week that our identity is not found in the blood that runs through us, but ultimately in the blood that runs over us, right? It's not about the blood that runs in us. It's not our background, our ethnicity, our skin color that defines us. It's the blood of Christ and, and him uniting us from different backgrounds into one people, bringing peace between us and God and ultimately uh in a relational sense between us and other believers, other, other individuals, other humans. And so we said last week that we can be thankful for Jesus who has abolished the law. Uh, not that he has completely removed the law, but particularly he has abolished the record of debt that stood against us. He's removed the shadows of the Old Testament that pointed to him. He's removed the requirements that were on us to be doing perfect work because he's come to be perfect for us. We talked about the plan of peace to unite people that we should pursue this type of reconciliation, not because of political agendas, uh, not because of personal guilt, but because of obedience to gospel uh, unity. Like we've been called to this. And so we should unite with others, particularly those who aren't like us, uh, to model what heaven's going to look like one day, right? And then we talked about embracing peace with each other, that um, ultimately hostility and disunity are not descriptors of the Christian faith, of Christian people. Uh, that we're to pursue unity, we're to have difficult conversations when we need to, to bring to light things that have been done to hurt us, right? And so it's part of what it means to be a Christian. It's to pursue unity with other people, um, to, to experience peace that Christ purchased on the cross. And so that brings us to the end of chapter two today, where we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we've become fellow citizens with the saints, uh, members of the household of God, And then we're also told that we are being joined together in this structure, this temple uh, that has a foundation of the apostles and prophets, a cornerstone that is Jesus, and we are being grown into a holy temple. And so we're going to talk about what that means today. All right. Summary sentence was, our new identity in Christ makes us citizens of God's kingdom, members of God's family, and stones in God's temple, which means each individual Christian is equally valuable and participation in a local church is vitally important. Our new identity in Christ, what we're seeing in Ephesians, particularly now in this section, 
when we've been talking so much about our identity, our identity in Christ, we've talked a lot about what we were and what we were not. Now we're talking about what Christ makes us into. We're citizens of God's kingdom, members of his family, stones in his temple. Each one of us has this identity, which means each one of us is equally valuable and we're part of something bigger than ourselves. So participation in a local church is vitally important. For our kids, Christians are part of the church, which makes them part of God's kingdom, family, and temple. Now, I thought it interesting. I had a couple of commentators that I was reading point out the fact that in context of, you know, Paul highlighting the fact that people from all walks of life, these Gentiles are being united with Jews as the people of God. It's interesting when you look in the book of Acts, because if you think back into the Old Testament, everybody's a descendant, from, a descendant from Adam and Eve, right? But then post-flood, you've got Noah's family, which means everybody is ultimately a descendant from either one of his three sons, right? Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And then you look in the book of Acts, and you can see God saving people that have descended from each one of those sons, right? All the nations of the earth come from Noah's descendants, one of those three sons. And God is bringing salvation to the, to the descendants of all three of those. You have in Acts chapter 8, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, who's a descendant of Ham, being saved. You have Acts chapter 9, Paul being saved, who is a descendant of Shem. And then in Acts chapter 10, you have Cornelius, who's a descendant of Japheth. What does that say to us? It says that God is serious about what he's saying in Ephesians, practically in the narrative, as we see people from all walks of life, all Gentiles being united as one, the people of God. Paul uses three key analogies here we're going to see today for our identity as God's people. Citizens of a kingdom, members of a family, stones in a temple. It's important to note how um, these concepts would have been really important to the original readers. The concept of citizenship, the concept of temple worship, these were key concepts for the original readers. You know probably in reading through some of the New Testament how important Roman citizenship was, right? It gave special privilege even to Paul. Even when he's being persecuted for being a Christian, his Roman citizenship required he be persecuted in certain ways, right? Like certain things you couldn't do to Paul because he was a Roman citizen. There was great privilege in citizenship at that time. Even temple worship was something that was super important in the culture of both the Jew and the Gentile, particularly in Ephesus, right? The Jews had the temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple, where they were uh, prone to travel and go to for worship. But in Ephesus, from the Gentile lost perspective, they had, they had temples and, and places of worship for all their false gods, particularly the temple to Dinah there, that was a, a massive structure where they were prone to go into worship. And now what's being described is a different type of temple, not a physical temple, but a spiritual temple, right? What's interesting, too, is you see these analogies. These analogies are built on relationship, right? As Paul talks about what the church is, uh, it talks about it in context of relationship to each other, our relationship as citizens in a kingdom, our relationship as family members in a family, our relationship as stones in a bigger structure, a temple. It's relationships rather than excitement that defines this early church. And I hadn't thought about this before, but think about how Uh, difficult the transition would have been if you're a Gentile who's used to worshiping in a certain way. Think about what we know about early pagan worship practices, right? They would come to these places of worship where basically anything went. I mean, anything that was satisfying to the flesh took place at your church service, right? All the gratification of the flesh was offered to you when you would come to these pagan temples, Now imagine being the the leader of your home, right? You get saved, your your family gets saved, and then you sit down and have a family discussion that says, hey, we're not going to worship that way anymore, right? Worship looks different now. Now we're going to go to homes where we're going to sit and we're going to listen and and encourage one another and sing together and teach one another, but we're not going to have some of this excessive fleshly stuff, that would have been a hard transition, right? Because worship was built on excitement at that time. I mean, it was, it was satisfying to the flesh, and now it, it shifts gears and changes, and now it's all about relationship rather than this excitement and production that would have taken place in these pagan temples. It's a transitional time for God's people. It's moving from a focus on the physical to the spiritual. 
God's presence is not going to be limited to a place or a building or an ethnicity any longer, right? It's now expanding and growing and becoming this spiritual understanding, spiritual temple made up of all people. So we're going to see how Paul kind of caps chapter 2 with these three analogies of a city, a family, and a temple. So let's look at number one. We're called to live responsibly as a citizen of God's kingdom. We're called to live responsibly as a citizen of God's kingdom. He says in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. No longer strangers, no longer aliens. You are now fellow citizens in God's kingdom. We're no longer unfamiliar strangers to the things of God. We talked about this earlier um, in this chapter. Remember, it says that in verse 12, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There was a time where we were separated from God, and we were without promises, and we were without hope. And those things aren't true for us anymore for a believer. We've moved from being strangers and aliens to having hope and promises. Not only are we being made aware of these promises now, we're being given supernatural abilities to comprehend and enjoy them. Remember what Paul prays in Ephesians 1. He's praying that the believers would come to this deep, intimate understanding of the promises and hope that they possess as a Christian. Right? Not just being uh, mentally aware of them, not just memorizing scripture and knowing what the Bible says, but really practically understanding how does this look on a daily basis? How does this help me navigate life and circumstances? Right? So a supernatural ability has been given to us to not just know the promises of God, but to participate and experience those promises. We're no longer from unfamiliar strangers to the things of God. Number two, we're no longer partial participants in the things of God. There was a time where we were unable to fully enjoy these privileges, particularly in our Gentile heritage. Now, again, we don't experience this today because Christ has destroyed and defeated these dividing walls of hostility. But remember what we said, the Gentiles didn't have full access to the temple. They were kind of on the outside looking in at times. But we as Christians today, we're not second-class citizens with only certain rights, like we're dwelling in someone else's territory. And the Bible says that as Gentiles, we are welcomed into the family of God, and we have full access to it. All the rights and privileges that come with being a member of God's kingdom. Ben and I have the privilege of hunting on a lease here in town. I've been on the lease probably three, four or five, four years now, I think. This was Ben's first year. There's some guys on the lease that have been there for a long time, right? Now, the way the lease works is that when you become a member of the lease and you pay your fee, you should have every full right and privilege of any other member, right? But our lease functions a little bit more like the Jews and Gentiles, right? And there's some dividing walls of hostility where longstanding members seem to have greater privileges than new members, right? And so Ben and I had to navigate some waters this year about helping some of these other members realize Ben paid the same amount as you, right? So he should have full access to all the stands and all the rights and privileges of being on this lease, right? At times, he was treated like a second-class citizen, like a second-class lease member, right? Because he hadn't been there as long. Man, the privilege of being a part of God's family is it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. You don't grow into greater rights and privileges in God's family, right? You're immediately entering into full rights and privileges as a citizen, right? That's what Paul's saying here. You are a fellow citizen with these other saints. Full rights, full privileges. Think about how it's, uh, how it's like to be in a foreign country at times. I don't know how, those of you that have traveled overseas, when you don't enjoy citizenship, when you don't have full citizenship in a country, Think about like what you have to have, right? You always have to have paperwork with you to kind of indicate who you are and where you come from and how long you're allowed to stay here. It's kind of that stressful part of being out of the country. I remember um, one of my first experiences with uh, Stephen Folker, who we support in the Czech Republic. We were on a mission trip to Romania. So this is John Mark's brother. 
We're on a mission trip to Romania, and Stephen like loses his passport, right? Like like one of the first days we're there. I, I, if I remember correctly, he had it in a bag, and the bag was stolen, so no passport. And I remember uh, Ryan Tipton, who many of you know, who pastors the church Ecclesia in Noonan. Like I remember the two of them having to leave our group and having to go to the embassy and spend. Uh, maybe a day, I can't remember how long it was, but there was this whole process of trying to get that passport replicated. Like he couldn't be in the country. He wasn't going to be able to go home without it, right? He's not a citizen in that country. And so that paperwork was absolutely crucial, right? We don't have that hanging over us. We're not, we're not foreigners in a country where we're not citizens. We have full rights and full privileges in God's kingdom. Number three, we now enjoy the full benefits of the things of God. We're no longer unfamiliar strangers to it. We're not partial participants in it. We have full benefits of the things of God. We enjoy the power and protection from heaven that God gives to his people. Think about how oblivious we are to our citizenship privileges here as Americans. I mean, just think about how we operate on a daily basis and we don't think about the citizenship privileges that we possess, right? The fact that we can conduct business, the fact that we can make money, that we can get driver's licenses, that we can get medical attention, that we have legal protection. You're aware of those privileges when you go to a foreign country. Because as you start to plan a trip, you immediately start to think, what kind of money do I need, right? Uh, You immediately start to think about um, what type of insurance do I need? Because what happens if something medical goes wrong? Will they accept my medical coverage? Do I need extra medical coverage, right? And then you even start to think about what happens if, if I do something wrong over there, right? Like <laughs> what's going to be my course of action to, to make sure that I'm protected? These are things that we just take for granted here living in our own country, but you vacate that and go to a country where you're not a citizen. These all, all of a sudden become really important. Man, we don't want to be guilty as Christians of operating on a daily basis and taking for granted the privileges and benefits that are given to us as God's citizens. Man, we have full access to his power and provision, his grace and his mercy, and those are extended to us as citizens of his kingdom. The fact that we are citizens of his kingdom should remind us that our loyalties, our allegiances, our values, our laws, our customs, our duties— They're not best understood in the context of here, but really in the context of there. Philippians chapter 3 helps us to see where our citizenship is. It's not here in the U.S. It's not in any any other country where someone may hail from. It says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're awaiting a savior who will come to be the king of that kingdom for all time. We possess all the rights, benefits, privileges, blessings, and promises that any of God's people have ever enjoyed in history. Let me say that again. We possess all the rights, benefits, privileges, blessings, and promises that any of God's people have ever enjoyed in history. We're considered the offspring of Abraham. Nothing is withheld from us that is offered to any other saint or believer. Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 29 talks about us being offspring of Abraham. Galatians 3, 26. For in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This isn't just for the Jew. This is for the Gentile. Now, I told you before when we've gone through eschatology passages, whether it was in First and Second Thessalonians or Revelation, and the concept and the topic of Israel comes up. I've told you before, I don't believe that God's done with Israel, right? Like, I don't believe that God is done with national Jewish people. But what I do believe is that whatever he has in store for Israel, I believe he has in store for me too, right? 
I cannot read these passages in Scripture. I can't read Ephesians 2 and believe that there's coming a point in time where we will be separated once again and treated as Jew and Gentile differently, right? I believe we've been grafted in. So I think you can say, God's not done with Israel, but whatever he's got in store for his people, he is including me in that. Why do I believe that? Because I believe that Ephesians 2 teaches we are being made into one new man. No longer two, we are being made into one. And we are citizens, equal citizens, valuable citizens of God's kingdom with all the rights, all the benefits, all the privileges, all the blessings, all the promises that any of God's people have ever enjoyed in history. No matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how long your family has been a Christian, right? We're all considered offspring of Abraham now live responsibly as a citizen of God's kingdom. Enjoy those privileges that come with being a part of God's people. Number two, love intentionally as a member of God's family. We love intentionally as a member of God's family. The second analogy that Paul uses here to describe the people of God, to describe what is happening with the union of Jew and Gentile together, no longer strangers and aliens, fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God. Members of the family of God. This is where we go next level here. It's not just that I've been made a citizen of God's country, a citizen of God's nation. The intimacy I enjoy with God and his people extends deeper than a national citizenship. It extends into a family type of intimacy. Not only do I enjoy the rights, benefits, and privileges of being a citizen, I enjoy even more as an adopted member of the royal family. I enjoy even more as an adopted member of the royal family. We've got people in our church who who came to America and have gotten American citizenship, right? And now they enjoy all the rights and privileges that come with being an American as though they were born here. But imagine if they they were adopted by the president of the United States, right? That's a whole different level of intimacy as far as what it means to be an American. Not only are you just an average citizen, now you've been taken next level to where you are part of the the royal family for here, right? Like you're part of like deep intimacy about what it means to be an American because you're now in the family that's helping to lead our country. That's what we enjoy as Christians. Not just that we've been adopted into a national citizenship, but that we have access in the family of God, like the royal family we now have access to, which brings even more rights and benefits and privileges. We saw in Ephesians 1.5 that we're adopted into this family of God. We saw last week that we enjoy the same access to the Father as other believers, right? In verse... um, Ephesians 2 verse 18, for through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Wow, the intimacy we have as Christians, not just national intimacy, not just members of his kingdom, but members of his family. Number two, the intimacy I enjoy with God and his people then demands my loving participation. Right? So it's not just that I'm getting all these privileges and benefits and blessings of being a part of God's kingdom, being a part of his family, there's an obligation on my part now to participate in that. Look what some of the other verses in Scripture tell us in regards to this family relationship. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, I'm called to be like my father, right? So it's not just that I get adopted by God into his family and now have all the rights and privileges. There's an expectation that I become like him. Ephesians 5, 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're to be imitators of God as beloved children. We're to imitate our Father. We're to become like him. But then also we're to treat each other within the church like family members, not acquaintances, not strangers, not even just friends, but as family members. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verse 1 and 2, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Just pause there for a second and think about that. Think about how you treat your family. For our moms and dads, think about how you treat your children. 
for our children. Think about how you treat your mom and dad, and then also think about how you're supposed to treat your mom and dad, right? Like, this is how we are called to treat other children in the church, other men and women in the church. We're to have similar type relationships together as the family of God, which means we're to love each other. We're to forgive each other. We're to defend each other. We're to share with each other. We're not to abuse each other. Man, we get, we get placed into this new identity where we're not just citizens of a kingdom. We're members of a family. And that's to be reflected in how we treat each other. That that's, the, that's, the, that's the big piece of identity that we enjoy with each other, which means even as a, as a spouse, right? My wife is my sister in Christ, right? Your husband is your brother in Christ. And we're starting to get into that, that age now where our kids are growing up and, and it's going to be soon where they start to pursue relationships and marriages, right? For our students, you know, I put a special little note in here for you for my notes. That boy or girl that you begin to date is your brother and sister in Christ first, right? It supersedes the boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. And we have a responsibility to treat each other like family members, to love, to serve, to defend, to not abuse, right? To care for each other like we would our own family. The intimacy we enjoy, man, it's deeper than just national citizenship. It extends to family membership. We enjoy it, but then we also participate in it. And we participate in it and we care for each other on a whole new level. We love intentionally as members of God's family. And number three, we listen faithfully as a stone in God's temple. We listen faithfully as a stone in God's temple. We referenced again earlier how the Gentiles were used to not being able to access fully the temple of God, right? They were kind of on the outside looking in in some parts of it. I mean, think about reading that as a Gentile, this section right here. Maybe you've made that journey to Jerusalem. Maybe you've tried to gain access to God's temple. And maybe you've read the sign that we referenced last week that said, if you go any further, your death's on you. Because we will kill you if you're a Gentile and you go any further into God's temple. To now read this and it says, you're a building block in the temple, right? Like you are a crucial, important piece of the temple. It's not that you have full access to it. You are part of the structure itself. The Gentiles go from being unable to enter the temple to being a part of it. So back in Ephesians 2, we're citizens, we're family members. Verse 20, we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom this whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What does it mean to be a stone in God's temple? And how do we operate as a stone? First of all, as a temple stone, we align with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. As temple stones, we align with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the guiding stone he determines the direction of the building. He determines the security of the building. He determines the alignment, the stability, and the character of the, of the building. And all the other stones have to adjust to it. My first summer uh, out of high school, so I graduated in May, spent a summer working before I went off to Liberty. Probably the hardest summer of my life. My, my dad got me a job with a family friend working construction in Fayetteville at... Um, Brooks Concrete, and I was on one of the footing crews, which if you don't know what that means, that means you show up and there's virtually nothing there for the house except the land has been leveled for you, right? And then you're given some stakes and some rope and some guidelines for how to get the whole structure kind of set up. So you're going you're gonna to basically outline the house, and then once the outline is set, then you're going to start digging down to create the foundation, most of you know, like in the summertime, it is hot and the ground is hard because it's not raining a ton, right? And so you're just given a shovel and you're told to start digging like 12 to 16 inches deep all the way around this house. 
And one of the first crucial steps is that first stake that goes into the ground because the rest of the house is going to operate off that stake. So that first stake is really going to determine where the whole house is set. And I remember one time we had the whole thing lined up. We had stakes everywhere. We had rope everywhere. This is where we're going to lay the foundation. And it didn't fit in the spot where we had kind of lined it up. So the head guy shows up, took all the stakes up, took all the rope up and said, start over. Like, this isn't going to work, right? We couldn't just adjust certain things. The first stake was wrong. The first stake was out of adjustment. And we had to start over with that chief stake, that chief cornerstone, right? Jesus is the cornerstone of this temple that's being built us as the blocks, right? The church, he's the chief cornerstone. He's the cornerstone that we must believe in and align our lives to. Look what the Old Testament has to say about this picture of Jesus as the cornerstone. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Jesus is a cornerstone, and and God's saying that the Jews are even going to stumble over him. They're not going to accept him. We know that's true, right? They crucified him. Look what it says in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. Waters will overwhelm the shelter. These are Old Testament passages talking about Jesus being this chief cornerstone that God is going to establish. Now look what the New Testament has to say about it. Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in your eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus says, I'm that cornerstone, and you are rejecting me just like the Old Testament predicted. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 8 says this. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builder which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is the cornerstone. He is the one that we are to believe in for our salvation. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul's talking about Jew and Gentile here in salvation in Romans 9. The Jews were trying to win salvation through their own righteousness. And here Gentiles slip in and get saved, and they're coming from this pagan background. And there's confusion amongst the Jews. How can they be saved when we have all this lifetime of works behind us? Paul says it's by faith that salvation is attained, not through good works. And we're to believe in this cornerstone for our salvation. Last passage I'll read to you on this is 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
So the honor is for you who believe, for, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is who we are as believers now. We have been joined to this cornerstone. We're being made into this temple structure. We find our true place and function in life when we are joined to Christ as this cornerstone. He's the one who directs everything. He's our stability. Number two, as a temple stone, we remain grounded on the historical teachings of the Bible. So Jesus is the cornerstone. Then the rest of the foundation is laid before us. And Paul says, we are built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, not them as individuals, but their teachings. Look what chapter three, verse four and five says. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's the teaching of the apostles and the prophets that we are grounded on as a church. Now, the early church set the standard for us in how to operate like this, right? Acts 2.42 tells us that that early church, what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they were committed to knowing the teachings of the Christian faith. I put in my notes, we stand or fall on our belief in the faithfulness of God's word. Notice I didn't say we stand or fall as a church on the faithfulness of God's word. His word is faithful. We as a church will stand or fall based on our ongoing belief in the faithfulness of God's word. I fully believe that this church right here, this local church right here will stand for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years unless it deviates from believing in the faithfulness of God's word, then God has every right to come and take our lampstand from us. We saw that in Revelation. He has every right to come put the light out if we deviate from believing in the faithfulness of his word. We are founded on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets' teachings. I put this in my notes. In a day and age when culture continues to demand that we shift from the truth of God's word, we must stay grounded in what we have been taught to believe versus what we are being told to feel. In a day and age where culture demands that we shift from the truth of God's word, we must stay grounded in what we have been taught to believe versus what we are being told to feel. Look what 2 Timothy chapter 4 says. Verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. We cannot deviate from the truth of God's word. Man, we're in a time and day and age where culture would have us shift our beliefs about hell, gender, marriage, and sex. And what I I want us to know as adults, but what I especially want our kids to know, because our kids are in a battle for their minds right now. Whether it's through school, whether it's through media, whether it's through friends, they are in a battle right now. And they are in a battle as to whether they will continue to believe that what God says matters. And I want to tell you something, students. What God says about hell, gender, marriage, and sex, it's always mattered. You go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, and he lays the foundation for how we're to see these things. It's always mattered, and it will always matter. You fast forward to Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. 
I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It will always matter what he says about these topics, right? Regardless of what culture would tell us to believe or to feel about gender, marriage, and sex, what God says always matters about these topics. Revelation chapter 22, this is the end of our time as we know it, the age to come right there at the brink of it. He says in Revelation twenty-two ten. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil. The filthy still be filthy, the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It always matters. When he comes back, he will reestablish what the world has deviated from, and he will remind us it matters. It matters what I said about these things. As temple stones, we remain grounded on his historical teachings. Number three, as temple stones, we do our jobs while uniting with other believers as we grow together. As temple stones, we do our jobs while uniting with other believers as we grow together. We're not in isolation as stones. We're being made into a temple. We're being joined together. We grow into a holy temple in the Lord. You're being built together into a dwelling place for God. Think back to uh, Daniel chapter 2, the vision of Nebuchadnezzar with all these kingdoms. You got gold and silver and bronze and iron. And you know from the interpretation there that he's talking about Babylon. He's talking about the Medo-Persian Empire. He's talking about Greece. He's talking about Rome. And then he talks about this rock that comes in and crushes that statue. And that stone grows into a mountain, right? The difference between God's kingdom and every other kingdom that's on this earth, every other kingdom has been isolated to a certain region. The kingdom of God extends to the ends of the earth and grows into a great mountain that will never be torn down. And we participate in this. God's called us to use our gifts, abilities, resources, and experiences to exhort one another, Hebrews chapter 3, to encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and to excite one another, Hebrews chapter 10, to stir each other up to good works. This is our job as stones, as individual stones, as we hold our spot in the temple. My job is to help the stones around me by exhorting them and encouraging them and exciting them to be a great stone as well. That's my job. I'm a living, active part of God's temple. I unite with other believers. We grow together to the ends of the earth. And number four, as a temple stone, we are to be holy as a reflection of God living in us and through us. As temple stones, we are to be holy as a reflection of God living in us and through us. God's not tied to a holy building. He's tied to holy people. I'm to commit my body and my lifestyle to holiness and sanctification. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, talk about holiness because we are God's temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Right? Uh, skipping down. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. He talks about not touching unclean things, being holy and pure as the temple of God. And then lastly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave through you, the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother 
in this matter. See that relationship between the family, right? We don't allow sexual immorality to creep into our relationships because we don't harm each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pursue holiness and purity in the ways that we interact with each other. We're temple stones. We're to be holy because we are being grown into this temple where we are all equally valuable parts of it. Told you, I don't, I don't believe God's done with Israel, but whatever he has in store for Israel, I'm a part of it. We've also talked before, I mean, I, I struggle with the idea that God's gonna rebuild a temple one day, a physical temple, because I read passages like this and I feel like, man, God has turned his focus and attention to this. So even if a day comes where God rebuilds a physical temple, it will pale in comparison to the focus that will remain on us as his people for all eternity. We are his great temple that he is building up, growing into maturity. He's the head of it. He's the head of it. What are the implications from what we've seen today? I'm gonna give you three of them. We're gonna wrap up. Implication number one, people who are different than me should be really important to me. Man, if you can't read chapter two and see that, then you need to go back and read chapter two again. People who are different than me should be really important to me because this temple that God is growing and developing is about people from all walks of life, from all backgrounds being made into one new man. It's personified in the Jew and the Gentile relationship. But this extends to all Gentile relationships as well. People who are different than me should be really important to me. Number two, individual Christians should be really important to me. I'm a citizen of a bigger nation. I'm a family member of a bigger family. I'm a stone in a temple along with all the other believers. So individual Christians have great value, equal value right? We are working together to be these things together. And then number three, local church has a, as a formal institution should be really important to me. Man, hopefully you, you read this passage here and you realize we probably need to elevate our concept of the local church in a day and age and culture where the local church is being minimized, right? I can't tell you how many families I meet who are trying to come to Trinity, who have to work hard to get a pastoral recommendation to come because they don't have one. They have to work hard to explain to me why they are not regularly participating in a local church. And I hear all the excuses out there. We're busy, we got this going on, we do this, 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 this. Man, if we're a part of a church, the, the big universal church, and it's defined as a nation, a kingdom, a family, a temple, it's gotta be a priority in our life, right? It's meant to be more than a building. It's meant to be more than an event, Right? Church isn't a Sunday experience. It's a living organism we belong to. We are living life on mission together. The local church is tied to our identity. It's the means for how we express our identity. Individual faith cannot be expressed individually, right? Individual faith can't be expressed individually. It's always designed to be expressed in community as we do life together. Being a Christian without a local church is like being a displaced refugee an orphaned child, or a discarded stone. And they're just not as valuable by themselves, right? You see these guys that compete in the Olympics and they're like independents, right? Like they're not tied to a nation. They have no flag, no uniform, nothing that identifies them with a nation. They're just isolated, just their own individual person. An orphaned child without a family, a discarded stone. I've got some stones at my house from previous projects they're of little to no value by themselves, right? Like I see them and I keep them for whatever reason. I can't do anything with them unless I go buy a bunch of others, right? I don't need two stones left over from a project. They're, they're, they're of no significance to me, right? It's together that we really find our great value. We're being built into these big groups together. Identity truths to remember. Every Christian is a full citizen in the kingdom of God. Every Christian is an intimate member of the family of God. Every Christian is a unique stone in the temple of God. That's not true about our elders here. It's not just true about our deacons here. It's not just true about ministry leaders here. It's not just true about adults here. It's about every Christian that's sitting here today. These identity truths apply to you. This is who you are in Christ. Application, lots of questions for you to work through as we leave. Am I known for my citizenship here or there? 
Am I known for being a citizen in this country or the one that's to come? Is church an experience for me or is it a relationship for me? Am I temple-minded in my acts? Do I live with a temple mindset about my body? So three things for you to think about doing this week. Number one, what are you planning to do this week that is strictly tied to your duties as a citizen of heaven? We'll complete a lot of duties this week that are tied to our citizenship here in America, right? Tomorrow's like tax day. Like everything has to be postmarked by tomorrow, right? I think penalties start to ensue. So you may have to go file your taxes tomorrow. That's a duty of being an American citizen. Some of us did it last week. Got a little bit of ahead of the game. Some of us did it back in February, like we should have all done probably. What are you doing this week that's tied to your duties as a citizen of heaven, not your, your duties as a citizen here? Number two, what are you planning to do this week to connect with your church family before the next Sunday experience? Imagine the tragedy if you left here today and, and didn't see your family until next week, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't treat our family that way. We're going home with our family today. We wouldn't treat our family that way. The church family isn't to be enjoyed only on Sundays, right? What are you going to do to connect with your church family before the next Sunday experience? Because church is bigger than an experience. Then number three, what are you planning to do this week to ground yourself further in the teachings of God's word? It's the foundation that we fall on. It's the foundation that we are built on, right? That's part of our duties as a citizen in heaven is to continue to pursue a deep knowledge of the promises of God so we can experience those on a daily basis. Let's pray together. God, thank you for today. Even though we've gone a little bit long today, God, I thank you that we could be in your word. Thank you we could do so freely in this country. But God, despite all the great privileges and benefits of being a member of this country, we are far grateful and thankful more for being a citizen of your kingdom. God, thank you for welcoming us, not as a second-rate citizen, but as a, as a, citizen, to, a citizen who enjoys full rights and privileges the same rights and privileges that have been extended to saints for all of history. Thank you for including us in this. Thank you for giving us family, particularly when we've uh, experienced disappointment in our earthly families. Some of us that don't have moms and dads or siblings or kids ourselves, we can enjoy those things in the context of the local church. God, thank you for, for using us to be a temple where you can dwell where you can live in us and through us. God, help us as we leave today to be temple-minded in the way that we live this week. God, help us to pursue holiness and sanctification with the same great care that would have been given to the physical temple to preserve its holiness, its separation. God, help us to be separate from the world this week, to be temple-minded in how we treat each other, to treat each other as family, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers in Christ. God, help us to love each other, serve each other, protect and defend and forgive each other, to not abuse each other. God, help us to love each other faithfully. Help us to be mindful of these questions even as we leave today, God. Help us to be, help us to be engaging with our duties as a citizen of heaven this week. Help us to be mindful of serving each other this week and not just waiting till next Sunday. God, help us to be mindful of the obedience that you call us to this week as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.